spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories, uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala along that journey. Reflecting on the order and harmony within nature, Sheikh Abdul Karim Yahya knew at a young age that God existed. He embraced Islam in his junior year of high school in Berkeley, California. A translation of Imam Ghazali's renowned Ihyalamuddin inspired him to seek out teachers who embody these characteristics. His journey took him to Syria, where he studied Arabic and Tajweed, and then on to Tarim Yemen, where he was one of the first American students to enroll in the newly opened Dara Mustafa. That became his base for 13 years, and he became a translator for Habib Omar and the other Habaib all over the world. After returning to the U.S., he would eventually establish Dara Rahma in 2017 to serve and teach the Muslims of the Detroit area. In this episode, he talks about serving and learning with people of knowledge over the last 23 years. He also discusses the inner city community in Detroit where he teaches and how it's been impacted by COVID-19 and ongoing police brutality against the black community. Okay, bismillah. So my journey, um, I was born and raised in Berkeley, California. And um, not in a spiritual environment for much of my rearing. Though a woman who I was very close to who cared for me was a church-going woman. Her name, we knew her as Mama Johnny. She was an African-American woman. She's like my grandmother, but we're not related biologically. And um, so I had a little bit of experience with, um, with uh, people that, that you know, were devout Christians, but that was not that much. And, not, and, and my parents were not um, church-going during any of my childhood that I recall. And then um, I began to reflect about the existence of Allah in probably when I was 13 or 14. I came to that conclusion um, that God existed. And um, that was largely due to the time I spent out, spend outdoors. I used to spend a lot of time outdoors and just kind of observe the natural world and reflect. And the, the simple conclusion I arrived at was that it, it worked in too much harmony for it not to have um, a creator. Then when I was a young man at Berkeley High School, and I believe I was 15 years old, I was introduced to the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I, um, and I uh, really was impacted by that work. And that was the first introduction I had to Al-Islam. And it gave me a respect for Al-Islam and a sense of, um, of uh, like maybe you could say a sense of admiration, a sense of admiration and respect, and to a degree, 
because it was part of a black studies course I was taking. It gave me a um, like an allegiance towards Islam and Muslims. And I was also taught that there were West African kingdoms that were Muslim. And then um, I met my first wife, who was a student there, and she was from a Muslim family. And I began to study Al-Islam more formally and ended up embracing Islam and marrying my first wife. And I embraced Islam in 1989 as a junior in high school. What made you want to study sacred knowledge? There was a very active mosque in, in East Oakland, which was in a rough area of Oakland. It was uh, Masjid al-Islam, Oakland, which is on 82nd and MacArthur in Oakland, California. And um, I be, there were a lot of young converts there. And some of the, the women in my mother-in-law's network suggested we get introduced to them. And I became active at that community probably around 91 or 92. And we resided in that community. And there I was introduced to the works of Al-Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahullah, in translation. I think I had the Fadlul Rahman or Fadlul Karim. Trans, I forget his name even, but the translation of um, Ihya that you know, does not read that well, but I really fell in love with the revival of the religious sciences of Al-Imam al-Ghazali. And I wanted to meet people like those who he described as the learned men of the hereafter, who he describes in the first volume of Ihya. And then in 1995, so my sister-in-law was actually one of the first groups of students that went to Damascus in the 90s when they started going in, in you know, relatively significant numbers. She probably went to Damascus in 94. And she even preceded Imam Zaid Shaker and others being in Damascus by at least one year, I believe she preceded them. And um, in 1995, through her, I was introduced to Imam Zaid Shaker and, um, and Sheikh Abdullah Al-Qadi and by correspondence or phone, I forget which it was, Sheikh Nur Keller and um, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and other young brothers that work in their network. I was introduced to them in the summer of 95. And what I heard described, I think it might have been like the second or third dean intensive that they held in the United States. It was in New Mexico. What I heard them describing of the, the way knowledge was traditionally sought, I felt like that was describing the way um, the knowledge was transmitted that, that I saw in the, the Ihya al-Madin. So I said, okay, that's what I'd like to do. And I'd already considered the idea of going abroad to study, um, but I didn't know a place and a path. And really the person who is most, I'd say, responsible to kind of giving me uh, an, an avenue for that was my sister-in-law, again, who was one of the early students in, in, uh, in Damascus. So then um, I began, I stayed in touch with some of them, Sheikh, um, especially uh, Sheikh Abdullah Qadi and also Sheikh Nuh I stayed in touch with. I think Sheikh Abdullah put me in touch with Sheikh Nuh. And then I, to a degree, I stayed in touch with Imam Zaid and, um, and came to the conclusion to go to Damascus and we did that, my, my first wife and I, and, and 
three of our children. I think, yeah, our fourth was born in Damascus, three of our children. We traveled in late 90, 1996 to Damascus and began studying. And I had the intention of returning for work, but I was, um, I was gifted a, or given a scholarship that enabled me to only return to straighten out some affairs and then um, not, not need to return subsequently for work. So how did you start studying in Tarim? In the summer of 1997, Sheikh Nuh Keller and his wife, uh, Um Sahel, who both played a very significant role, especially the latter, because her responsibility was more directly supervising students. They played a significant role in my studies and to, until as recently as last Jumada, I visited them. And I stay in touch with them, Allah preserve them and bless them and continue to bring fruits from their work and grant us to be fruits. Um, they sent a group of us to Tarim, Yemen, to attend what was the third Dora Seyfiya, the third summer intensive or summer Dora in Tarim. That was the summer of 1997. And I was um, honored to accompany Sheikh Ibrahim Osiefa, who was very well known in the UK and by some of his excellent and amazing and very intellect, intelligent and insightful lectures. He's known on the net and he's known locally and for his work in England. I had the opportunity of attending him and uh, accompanying him and also accompanying Sheikh Jamaluddin Haysa, who's not as well known, um, to, uh, Allah preserve them both, to the third Dora Seyfiya, the third summer intensive in Tadim in 1997. And to my knowledge, we were the first students from the United States to kind of enroll in a program in Dar Mustafa and um, complete it. There might have been some who preceded us, but I'm not aware of them. I'm aware of some Canadians and some people from the UK. Um, and then, you know, we really, in, when I reached Tarim, I felt like I was seeing the people I had seen described in Ihya al-Madin. And I still feel that way, maybe even more so than I did then. So I immediate, we all immediately decided that we would, um, and, and we were sent to attend and also see, uh, investigate the possibilities of us returning with our families because things were relatively um, undeveloped at that point, extremely undeveloped at that point. And they, there was fear that it might be too difficult for families to be there. And we were sent to investigate and we immediately decided that we wanted to return. So we spent about 50 days probably, give or take, down in Tadim. In the summer of 1997, we attended the Dora Seyfia, the summer intensive. At that time, it overlapped with what was the... Um, private visit to Nabi Hud that Habib Omar and his students would conduct. And they, um, they would do a private visit in Muharram at that time. And it might have been changed some to Rabia now uh, in some years. And also certain events recently might have changed the date of that a little bit. But at that time, if I remember correctly, it was in Muharram. And that corresponded to just before the Dora Seyfiya, the, the summer intensive. So we went and went to Nabi Hud. And then we returned and attended the Dora Stafia. And in the beginning of the summer intensive, we resided in Habib Omar's house. And then the first hallway of residence um, 
dormitories was finished of Dara Mustafa. So we had the opportunity to move into those dormitories with the first group of the Dara Mustafa graduates who were probably in their third or fourth year of study at that point, or maybe more. They were, they were well into their study. They graduated in 98. So they were the year before they graduated. And prior to that, they had been living in homes that were rented or masajid that were close to Habib Omar's um, home masjid. So we moved in with them and lived with them and finished the, so the, the summer intensive of 1997. That was the third summer intensive. And we returned summer intensive to Damascus to continue studies. And um, then I returned to Tadim in 1999 and um, settled there and at that time I was taking students in elementary books so myself and Sheikh Jamaluddin Haysaw we were able to join Habib Omar's Halakha his study circle in the evening between Maghrib and Isha in the Risala al-Jamia Risala al-Jamia the comprehensive Treaties of Habib Ahmed bin Zain al-Habishi. That in his halakha. And in the morning, I don't remember if Sheikh Jamal was in that lesson or not, but I was able to join the Habib Omar's lesson in the Ajrumiya. And then we joined some other halakha as well and began our studies there. And that was, again, uh, say it was around Rajab of uh, that lunar year, but I don't recall exactly. And then... Um, Alhamdulillah, I resided in Tadim as a base from 1999 until 2012. However, during a number of times, I had extended visits outside of Tadim. After about five or seven years of that time, I began traveling a lot. And I would sometimes maybe circumstances a child being born or other circumstances might have me in california for up to a year and then i but my base was still Tadim. and then sometime during that time period and i don't recall when it began i had uh, the opportunity i had many opportunities to travel internationally with uh, habib omar in order to translate for him in english-speaking countries such as the united states and the united kingdom canada australia Scandinavia, South Africa, and uh, a little bit, not as much as a translator, but um, more just to accompany him in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia, and Indonesia. And that a lot of my studies and a lot of my learning was more focused on keeping the company of and serving my teachers than it was specifically in Havakat, though we had a lot of time in Havakat. Um, and they really, really, really gave. One of our, our teachers, Habib Mashur, Habib Ali Mashur. And today we always just called him Habib Mashur generally, but a lot of times they'll give compound names in Hadramaut. Um, so he was, his name is formally Al Habib Ali Mashur, bin Muhammad bin Salim bin Hafid bin Sheikh Abu Bakr bin Salim. But we would just call him Habib Mashur. That's Habib Omar's older brother and the late Mufti of Tadim, who's just passed. We had the opportunity to study with him in um, a number of the volumes of the Minhaj of Al-Ibn al-Nawawi. We, alhamdulillah, we studied um, a number of works with Al-Habib Omar and, uh, and other teachers of Dar Mustafa. But specifically those two, um, as much as I could, I tried to make my time or my acquisition of knowledge 
keeping their company and learning from them and serving them to the degree that we could. And many of those lessons were on the road or in passing. I remember a lesson from Al-Habib Mashur where someone was trespassing and went as far as to remove, like, you know, you put poles to block a dirt road. Um, and he had put poles to prevent someone from trespassing on some of the, the land that was endowed that he was responsible for, that he was supervising. And um, if, if, I'm, if my memory doesn't fail me, he was responsible for supervising the endowments of the Juma Mosque of Tadim. So I happened, I don't know why, I think I was there to see his son, who was his, like a secretary that I was reading a lesson with. But I happened to be present when, for example, he was meeting the people that had trespassed on, on the endowments. You know, and, you, and I, I learned a big lesson about, you know, about uh, guarding Allah's limits and trusts that are sacred, you know, by the, the firmness with which he dealt with those people. Um, and, you know, you get a lot of lessons seeing, seeing and learning their life as a lesson. So, alhamdulillah, I'm very, very grateful for the time that I had. And um, I still stay in touch and meet them and study with them when I can. I met a Habib Omar and a Habib Mashur, Allah last in Jordan and attended their gatherings and their visits to uh, their great uncle, Jafar bin Abi Talib, during the Mosim, which is in Jumada al-Awwal in Jordan each year on the lunar calendar. And, um, and I hope to see them again soon, inshallah, or see the Habib Omar soon and visit Al-Habib Mashur's grave. So our, uh, our journey is very much, uh, inshallah, yeah. if Allah has given us tawfiq for that, still underway and we're still learning. And uh, alhamdulillah. And then in 2012, I returned to the United States and made my base in the United States where I currently reside. And um, where working with a very good group of brothers and sisters under, um, under the guidance and the teachings of um, the, the, the men that we took knowledge from in Tareem to found Dar Rahma, which is a, um, a center of learning in the west side of Detroit, Michigan. So that's what we're working on now, alhamdulillah. Just building on what you already said, can you speak about some of the teachers that had the biggest impact on you, especially um, because you were able to for a short period, live in Habib Omar's house and, and travel with him. Um, what, what side of him did you see that maybe others didn't have access to? Uh, well, I can't say what access others had, and I don't want to limit Allah's grace because someone may see them in an instant and attain a lot more than we did mm-hmm. due to the um, aptitude of that person and their excellence in acquisition. But what I can say is that um, in Damascus, Now, in Damascus, I was very much an elementary student, and um, my goal there, especially after visiting Tadim, was to work on my Arabic and my Tajweed, and I had the opportunity to read Tajweed with a sheikh who we knew as Abu Anas, who took lessons after Fajr in a a mosque, uh, I think it was in the area of Damascus called Maliki. That was the first text that I took in um, in the sacred disciplines from a sheikh. And alhamdulillah, we, we took that from him, Jazahullahu Khairan. 
And another person who had a great impact on me, who was not, the impact was not um, in the way of formal teaching, but in the way of just observing someone and how they're to be with their shiuch and, and the believers. His name is Abu Munir, and he was the servant of Sheikh Abdurrahman al-Shaghuri. And alhamdulillah, I've been able to maintain a relationship with him as well. I visited him. He resides now in Jordan. We visited him in the last Jumada. And a lot of people don't know this about Abu Munir, but even since that time he was met, Boone, he had permission to teach in Tasawwuf, but he didn't take students then. But his state was a lesson. And if I were to say one living person who I had the most love for of those who resided in Damascus after I departed, it's Abu Munir. Though now he's out of Damascus, and Allah give ease and afia to the people of Syria. Um, so that was another person. And, um, and again, our time with him in Damascus was him serving us and us watching him serve the shiuch and serve gatherings. And just seeing the state of a beautiful Muslim that embodies al-Islam and al-Iman and al-Ihsan. I remember, you know, my mother, who was non-Muslim at the time, she embraced Islam in 2001. So she would have seen him in 1996, 97, 98, approximately. And she would visit us in Damascus. And we saw Abu Munir and a man named Abu Hassan in the in the post office in downtown Damascus. And I went and spoke to them. And she was just impacted by their light. She was like, who are those men? You know, they're really, she could see that they were special just from, you know, even from a distance as I went up and greeted them and exchanged some words with them. So that Abu Munir had an impact. Uh, we had the opportunity of meeting Sheikh Abdurrahman al-Shawuri. And again, I was a very elementary student. I could barely communicate, or I couldn't communicate in the beginning in Arabic, and by the end, I could barely communicate. Um, but he, he was very good to us, alhamdulillah. And we had the opportunity to attend his gatherings and um, visit him at times and ask some questions of him. And um, and then also uh, Sheikh Nur Keller and especially his wife, Um Sahel. And if I were to list my shiuch, um, she would be one of the women that I would list. And it wasn't, again, as much formal stush, as much formal study as it was like tarbiyah of elementary students that they would, uh, especially that she would give us what our etiquette should be in study, our intentions, our discipline. She supervised the students that were on a scholarship, and many of us um, are indebted to them for that scholarship. And I'm not going to list the other names. I'll just say myself that I'm indebted to them. And I've stayed in touch with them since. And I've been assisted by them many, many times. Jazakumullahu khairan. Um, so they both had an impact, a, bit, a profound impact. And uh, I, I wish I was a better student. It would have been more. And then, um, and they were the ones who sent us to Tareem. And then we traveled to Tareem. And then um, our shiuch in Tareem, the, the, those um, that, that, and, you know, they're like a da'ira, they're like a sphere. And there'll be an access to that sphere. And out of etiquette with them, I don't want to mention who, the, who I would deem that to be, but that's like a group of, of people that are, have love for Allah and allegiance mm -hmm. for one another and ta'awun, al-birri wa taqwa, cooperation in, in, in piety and, and God consciousness. And we benefited from, inshallah, 
despite our lack of adab, we benefited from all of them. But among those that we benefited from um, were Habib Ali Mashur, who's the late Mufti of Tadim, the elder brother of Habib Omar. As, and the Sayyid of Habib Omar, as we mentioned, we were in, in his halaqa and traveled in his service many, for a number of years. And may Allah grant us to still do so. Um, also, Habib Omar's nephew and the son of Habib Mashur, Habib Abdurrahman um, bin Hafid. Also, um, Sheikh Omar Hussein al-Khatib, who is um, from the, the, the group that are known as the Mashayikh, that are the scholarly tribes that um, had a love and allegiance for the family of the Prophet, but were of other lineage. They in the case of the Khatibs, they descend to Abad bin Bishr al-Ansari, who resided and died in Tadim, or in Hadramaut, his graves outside of Tadim. Allah anhu. Um, Sheikh Omar, we took a lot from. Uh, he was he was like a deputy teacher in Habib Omar's halakha, and then eventually took over the halakha as it moved on to other books. Um, and then. Just the general teaching body of, of Dara Mustafa and um, and the Habayab that presided over other gatherings in Tadim outside of Dara Mustafa and would often visit Dara Mustafa. And also um, Habib Ali al-Jifri, who was like an adjunct teacher. He resided during, in our early days. He, his base was in Tadim. And I had the opportunity to spend many nights um, sitting up late uh, speaking to him. Um, about questions and just helping us kind of process as young people from the West what we were learning. Um, and uh, and la ilaha illallah. And then some of the elders that were in Tareem, um, Habib Abdullah bin Muhammad bin Alawi bin Shihab, who's passed now, Allah yarhamu. Uh, Habib Salam al-Shatari, who's also passed, Allah yarhamu. And, and just a number of the elders of, of the Habayib and the Mashaykh, Sheikh Muhammad Ali al-Khatib, we had the opportunity, who's, who's another of the Muftis of Tareem, to of attending um, his halakhan minhaj as, as like an auditor at the Rabat of Tareem. And, um, and uh, I guess, you know, you know what, what I would say that, um, that, that one sees behind the scenes, um, if one has a lot of time, with the Habayab, and I believe that this would be something anyone who spent time with al ulama al amilin the learned who act on their knowledge, is that you see um, those who embody their knowledge. You know, so uh, one of the, the greatest lessons I, I feel that I learned was that, you know, as an elementary student, you don't read Ihya al-Muddin. You, and as a very elementary student, you wouldn't read in books of Shemayel, of prophetic description. Um, your books of your legal books are um, are relatively elementary, and a lot of the detail is not in those elementary books. But um, what I realized when I got to a point where I was reading in those books, and I still realize this, I might see it, you know, maybe in the last month I might have seen it, that you know, things that I witnessed and observed in their conduct and their practice, um, they were demonstrating what was in the works that we would later study, um, and, and they were embodying it, you know. So, like, I really felt that in many, many ways, and, and everyone's uh, human, but you have to be careful not to be veiled by, by their humanness from their, from their election, the Allah's selection of them. And... Um, 
you know, I felt like I was living among people that walked out of Ihyala Medin without, without exaggeration. And, um, you know, just, I remember I asked Habib Omar about his shiuch and what he saw from And he said, um, he said, uh, you know, I saw from them irth. I saw from them the, the inheritance of the legacy of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi and that he, he mentioned that he had seen from Habib Muhammad bin Adri bin Shihab uh, lessons in humility that you couldn't learn from books. And I would say the same thing about Habib Omar. You know, lessons in, um, in humility, in tahammul, just like enduring, uh, enduring hardship for Allah's sake and, and enduring our poor character and etiquette with him and others, that of others. Um, just, you know, I've never seen anyone work harder and I've never seen anyone endure more, you know, and in all of the time we spend, I can't say that I, he's ever spoken to me uh, in, like he was frustrated with me. He's disciplined me. First, I would say in, what is it now? Uh, it's 20 years, 23 years. Um, I've never seen him lose his patience. Never with any of us, you know, I've seen him come to a point where someone discipline was warranted, but I've never seen him. I've ne I could never say that he's lost his patience and snapped at me where I felt that I was being treated unfairly. Um, and that's, you know, that's on off planes, in and out of cars, in and out of hotels. I remember we were traveling and Wokella, he gave me this book to read with him on the trip and for like two or three gatherings, I forgot the book and it's like a gathering and they're, they're going to, you know, sit, visit somebody. There's just maybe some reminders. And then one of the students is supposed to read the book in the gathering and maybe it ends with a song and he'd be like, where's your book? Ah, my book's in the car. Habib. Car doesn't read books, you know, just uh, incredible patience and amazing character. Um, and uh, absolute sacrifice. Allahu Akbar for Allah's sake. No. And, um, I would say, uh, you know, someone that, and there's a lot of talk in, in the States now about like, you know, what is really Tesawaf or does Tarbiya still exist or, you know, um, and I would say that, uh, that, you know, if you, when one keeps the company of, of, of the, of people of that caliber, you really, really see that, that, that um, the Tarbiya of the Prophet is, is very alive and well and living. And the only question is whether um, you're up to the task of acquisition. There's no question about its presence and it's about, about its transmission uh, through those elect um, individuals. Thank you for sharing um, about your teachers. Um, when you eventually did come back to the States, how did you land in Detroit? And, and can you talk a little bit about your community in Detroit that the Rahma serves? Alhamdulillah. So um, we had some very good brothers and sisters who we met from Michigan. And um, we had a fellow student, Dr. Omar Mahmoud, who studied very, very briefly in Tarim. He was there for like six months. But Habib Omar mentioned his fiqh. Like he had, he, he had a good understanding. He had a good comprehension of what was going on. He benefited a lot in a short time. And I think it was Wayne State. It was some local university. He did some of his graduate work and introduced um, a number of young men 
to um, the methodology of our, our teachers. And they stayed in touch with that. And um, some of them requested that we visit Michigan. And they introduced us to a number of the elders in Michigan. Among them, and I believe the first of them was Al Imam Abdullah Al Amin, who is the Imam Emeritus at the Muslim Center of Detroit. And also among them was Imam Salim Khalid, who was very well known in the metro. And I don't know if he's still presiding over a, a project known as Muslim Enrichment Project, MEP, or if he's kind of a, a, a consultant with them. I'm not sure right now, but but he's you know he's known as like the founding director of MEP. And then also Sheikh Ali Suleiman Ali, who is um, very well known in Metro Detroit. He's an imam of a community called Muslim Community of the Western Suburbs, NCWS, and also a, a project called Muslim Family Services. It's a service project in Detroit. And um, we met them, and we were and hosted by these young people. And at that point, we were exploring opportunities to return and base and, and do service in North America. And um, at that, now, I don't, um, what, my, what I recall is that it was the intention of our brother, and that the brother's name is Mazin, who invited us on that first visit to Michigan. But then also, um, the first one I remember extending an encouragement or invitation for me to relocate to Michigan was Imam Salim Khalid. And then, um, you know, so we began to kind of pursue that relationship and visit the community. We visited, I think that was before 2009, then we visited again in 2009. And um, so maybe we visited twice before 2011 when Al-Habib Omar came to Michigan. And there was a very excellent tour that he did of, of, of various parts of Metro Detroit as part of his larger tour to North America in 2011. And that also um, further developed the relationship and we still continue to reap the benefits of, 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 um, of, uh, of relationships that were established or introductions that were made during that visit, alhamdulillah. And then um, that just came to a point where we, uh, where we got an invite to a teaching position here that we took um, and that was with a different um, educational project that wasn't our own project. Um, and we did that for a period of time. And then um, circumstances in Allah's decree mandated that we um, move on to doing something that was, was more specifically and directly um, in line with uh, the teachings we received from our shayukh. And also, um, I actually left, um, as we mentioned in 1996, when I left the United States, I was active at, at a community that was, was located in um, a rough area of Oakland. Mm -hmm. And I had an interest in, in, in locating in a similar area um, in, in Michigan. So, um, so in 2017, 18, we founded um, Dara Rahma as like a legal entity and as an intention, or as we could say, an, as an intention and a legal entity. And then in 2018, we uh, found um, the, the, the facility, or Allah led us to the facility that, um, that we acquired. And we say that Allah gifted to us. Um, and then that was made a, a waqf, that was made a, a, 
an Islamic endowment for the purposes of um, learning and teaching sacred knowledge um, that is acquired from uh, people with an aptitude and with um, proper uh, chains of transmission um, in those uh, those disciplines and purifying human hearts and um, refining human character and inviting to Allah. So Dara Rahma was founded with those three intentions of learning, of um, purifying hearts and inviting to Allah. And that was in March of 2018. We were given these buildings. And then, um, and, uh, then we've been working on that since, alhamdulillah, with good brothers and sisters. Um, we're located in, a, in a, uh, an underserved African-American area, though also close to Dearborn that has a large Arab-American population. And we have a lot of brothers and sisters from all over the metro of all types of all various backgrounds, African-Americans, European-Americans, Arab-Americans, um, people of South Asian descent and others, um, good brothers and sisters. Right now, especially, we have what I like to call the dream team of really, really good brothers and sisters, young brothers and sisters of a lot of futuwa, like people that are really people of service that are doing a lot of good work, which is what do you have to think about as an imam in Detroit and, as you said, an underserved community that maybe other imams don't have to think about or worry about? Um, well, I'm new at this. Mm-hmm. And I, I still consider myself more of a, a, a transmitter of knowledge than an imam, per se. Um, and, um, for example, until this whole COVID-19 shelter-in-place order, we hadn't established Juma at Dar Rahma. So typically at a, at a mosque um, in the United States, Juma is the most important gathering of, of the week or of the month. The four Jumas are the most important gatherings of the month. Whereas Dar Rahma, um, its purpose being education and, and training, um, we hadn't established Juma because that was, you could say that was, um, that was a component to a healthy spiritual life, but not, um, not an, a, an essential part of the curriculum necessarily of an educational facility. So, for example, at Dar, at Dar al-Mustafa, where we studied in Tarim, they don't hold Jumu'ah. The students walk to Jumu'ah at a nearby mosque. They hold the five daily prayers, um, and the students reside on campus. Um, so Dar al-Rahma, you know, it's, it's more so an educational facility, and then, um, you know, but you as a community, everybody's got to pray Juma. And then if you have a, a curriculum and an overarching message, it's helpful to give um, reminders of that in the context of admonition and, and sermon. Um, so Juma was on the was on the overall plan, but it hadn't been established yet because there were things of more primary importance that were established prior to that lessons and such. And also because we're in an elementary stage. Um, and however, the COVID-19 shelter-in-place order ironically made us establish Jumu'ah because um, I reside on site and there's a position in the Shefi school that Jumu'ah can be held with four people. And I have a number of boys in my household and also uh, we were distributing food. So that was one of the types of organizations that is exempted from, um, from, from you know, some of the shelter-in-place orders. So we had a, a group to establish at least a minimum Juma each week, and we've been doing Juma. Um, but prior to that time, we weren't doing Juma. So, so my purview isn't as much like uh, an imam in many communities as it is more so like um, 
you know, someone that serves uh, in, in teaching and, and reminding and conducting gatherings of dhikr and salawat on the Prophet Sallallahu But I would say, um, you know, anytime you deal with uh, those who embrace Islam, uh, whether you're in an inner city area or whether you're in a suburban area, wherever you are, um, you know, a big part of your work is going to be dealing with um, um, the social issues and the um, like the social the social work you could say the 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 helping a, a new Muslim in this environment this North American environment that's coming from either he or his family having been um, you know of a Christian background or some other religious affiliation and helping them transition in a healthy way into al-Islam. Um, you know, so that's a lot of the work. And, um, and you know, uh, there's a component where, especially in an underserved area, there's going to have to be a component of, of assisting people economically, um, of assisting people socially, people, you know, they they may have to negotiate the relationships with um, their non-Muslim family. It may be extended family, even if their immediate household is Muslim. For example, you know, we were talking to we have a session on, on Futuo with some of uh, with young and older men, from men of fifteen all the way up to close to their no, all, definitely all the way up to their seventies. We have men from their fifteen all the way to to to, to seventy or more. You know, one of the questions that we had, we were talking about in Abu Abdurrahman al-Sulami's book on al-Futuwa. And we we're talking about company and what have you. So one of the brothers said, so then we can't go to cabarets with our relatives. <laughs> I said, what is a cabaret? And a cabaret is like an informal party at a, at a hall, a rented hall, you know, where they'll be drinking and there'll be this and there'll be that. And it's like, you know, my uncles want me to come. And, it's, you know, so just helping people make that transition from various things in their lives um, you know, in, in any North American community where you have converts, because people in the United States, we divorce, you know, so you're going to be dealing with um, a lot of, uh, you know, households that might be a single mother or a single father and children, you know, so you're, you're addressing those concerns, um, teaching the parents and then trying to, uh, you know, provide some love and guidance to the children. And um, yeah, I don't, uh, and I haven't served as much, you know, this is the first time I've had a facility that I was working from that was our facility. So it's somewhat new, but like those are some of the things we, we address. Uh, if I could summarize right now, COVID-19 shelter in place, a big portion, and this is across the demographics, uh, we're trying to serve um, preservation of Iman and Yaqeen people being confident about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his decree and trusting in him and navigating relatively uh, scary circumstances uh, through their, you know, faith and certainty and surrender to the decree of Allah and hopefully having some tranquility in that. And one of the main ways that transmits is, is gathering with them and remembering Allah, which is a powerful means to deepen iman and yaqeen and a powerful means of protection. Um, secondly, education, so teaching. And then um, thirdly, because we anticipate, it hasn't hit, but we anticipate a lot of hungry people 
trying to serve, especially by feeding. And that's very common in Detroit mosques is a, it is, is a feeding program. To my knowledge, every mosque that I'm aware of has a, a soup kitchen, or at least most of them. I know Masjid Haq was the first. Masjid Haq has a feeding kitchen, has a soup kitchen. Muslim Center of Detroit has a soup kitchen. To my knowledge, Wali Muhammad has a soup kitchen. And, you know, that's just, um, that's just a natural component. And that very much um, is in line with what we saw from our shayukh and tarim and what we learned from them. That is, a, you know, the Prophet ﷺ, he was asked what Islam is best. And he said to give food and give salams to those who you don't know, those who you know and those who you don't know. So right now, if we were to say like, those are three areas that we're working hard at um, is, you know, remembering Allah with the people education you know transmission of knowledge and that's by teaching but also trying to um, imitate the example of our shayukh along with the people keep their company and we all imitate the 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 learned together and um and service and that service right now has been in the way of feeding but you know there are many services that are needed but that's a very fundamental service and that's a service that was a component of the original community in al Medina from the Prophet Sallallahu first um, reminder there was spread peace and share food and pray by night while the people are sleeping. Okay, last question, Shal, we can close with this. Um, but I just wanted to ask, um, I mean, we have a lot of things going on right now. We have shelter in place. There's uh, riots, past week or so. Or yeah. uprisings, you could say. Exactly. Yeah. Do you have um, any words of hope for um, people that are listening and about just kind of dealing with everything that's going on right now. Allahu Akbar. And that actually uh, dovetails with your last question well. I got a call from an, an uncle, an African-American uncle, who he described himself as, you know, he was involved in like gang wars prior to his Islam. And now he's my senior. I think he's my senior by at least 20 years. And he called very distraught about, you know, um, the, 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 the video of our uncle, uh, Mr. Floyd, who was, who was um, I don't even want to say murdered, that was like um, exterminated, mm. you know, in uh, Minnesota. And he was very distraught. He said that it hurt his heart. And I have purposely not watched that video. Um, but just, you know, it hurt my heart just to hear his pain. And, you know, in a, in, a, in a community like ours, you know, that could be the uncle who I was speaking to. That could be my father. Um, as, as I'm rearing my sons, that could be my sons when they got older. So that really, um, that really is very, very close to home. And we have, you know, I really believe, and I haven't studied, you know, meta, meta DNA and all of that, but I really believe that we have, you know, an ancestral memory um, and certainly, you know, in our extended family or our personal lives, we have, um, we have, you know, conscious memories, all of us, by that I mean African-American Muslims, of, of, you know, lynchings and beatings and police mistreatment, all of us, it's very close. Uh, and that pain is very, very real, and the angst is real. And um, and you know what myself and the uncle spoke about is that you know um, we'll find some tranquility in um, first of all recognizing that everything that happens is Allah's decree, 
And everything that happens is a lesson for us from Allah. And some of those lessons are beautiful and um, enjoyable lessons. And some of those lessons are tough lessons. And we have to surrender to Allah's decree inwardly. Um, but outwardly uh, and inwardly, we also have to always bear in mind the Sharia, the law. So, you know, a wrong like that um, at the level of, of, of law and justice, um, we have to be, um, be angered by that and reject that. And to the degree that we can um, take measures to prevent and redress grievances in a case like this, um, you know, those that had the wherewithal to influence this case, I would advise them to do so. You know, our brother Imam Dawood Walid has a, a, very, a gift, not just to the Metro Detroit, but also to the United States. Mm -hmm. Someone I defer to a lot on these things. You know, we should be calling and pressuring uh, the, the Turner General of, of Minnesota, the local prosecutors of Minnesota, as well as federal prosecutors about this case. You know, we should do what we can outwardly to influence justice in this case, while inwardly surrendering to Allah's decree. And then also remembering that... Um, justice will be served you know and i say that especially to my brothers from environments where they might be inclined uh, and and i would think any man would be inclined to um, to bring justice if he were able to with his own hands though many of us are not going to be able to nor may that be good discretion that we should you know find some tranquility um that in the fact that as a believer we should be absolutely certain that justice will ultimately be served. Justice may take place in this world and it may not take place. Um, but ultimately on Yom Qiyamah, no one who is decreed to enter paradise and no one who is decreed to enter hellfire will leave uh, the day of judgment and enter either of those places if there's any, re if there's any wrong that has not been redressed. So no one of paradise will enter paradise and there's a wrong that they have not redressed to a person of hellfire or a person of paradise until um, that wrong is redressed and similar in the, in the reverse case. So ultimately justice will be served. Um, we reject anything like this. Um, uh, and, but, but also we have to surrender. We can't force Allah's hands. We can't bring it. And figuratively, obviously you can't understand Allah's resembling his creation. We can't force Allah's decree uh, we can't bring it in the time and the manner we wish, um, but he has promised us uh, on the true tongue of his Prophet Sallallahu in many places in his book uh, that justice will be done. And again, that's not to the exclusion of any measures that could be taken at a legal level and in, a worldly, at, at, in this worldly plane uh, to bring justice. And also, um, believers should find uh, hope in al-aqibah uh, lil-muttaqeen, that in, in the final outcome of things, um, affairs will be for those in the interest of those who have taqwa, those who have a, a mindfulness of Allah that, um, that uh, induces them to obey all of his commands and avoid his prohibitions, that ultimately the outcome will be in favor of them. And we hope that we are that. La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, and then, um, you know, the believers should make a lot of dhikr right now. And the believers should make a lot of prayer. And the theme of this COVID-19 pandemic for us has been Bismillahi ladhi la yadhuru ma'azmihi shayun fil ardi wa la fis samai wa huwa samiyu al-adhim. 
in the name of Allah, who with his name, nothing is harmed in the heavens and the earth, and he is the all-hearing, the all-knowing. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he taught us in a strong hadith that someone who says that three times in the morning or the evening, no single thing would harm them in that time period. And I remember when the, um, the, the most recent war in Yemen began, and Habib Omar gave a lecture to the students of Dar Mustafa who were going to reside there, and some were going to return home, that, you know, this is what we say. And he said, do you say it as a believer? And do you know what a thing is? Do you know what shay is? It's any single thing. And Allah, on the tongue of his prophet, promised us that no single thing will cause harm for the one who says this. So say it as a believer. And he said, are you a believer? Or are you not a believer? And I visited Tadim during that period of time. And actually my daughter, my teenage daughter, did and does reside there through this whole uh, time. And, you know, I went to Tadim and it was the most tranquil I've ever seen it. You know, with all of the news you're hearing and blah, 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 it was the most tranquil I'd ever seen it. And it was very evident that they were living in uh, tranquility and confidence in Allah's guarantee. So that's been what we've been trying to remind our brothers and sisters during this COVID-19 morning, evening, several times a day. In any way we could try to seek that a prayer be answered, we say that. And we, we know that the COVID-19 is a thing. Um, and any police officer is a thing. And the one who says this, Allah can protect you from that. And then also that ultimately um, the shaitan, Allah protect us and, and, and all of the believers and those for whom salvation is decreed from him and from all of his minions of mankind and jinn that, you know, many people I spoke to, fellow seekers of knowledge, imams, you know, elders who have decades of service, younger people, talked about how tranquil this Ramadan was during this time. And a lot of times that's the case, you know, times of difficulty when you surrender will become times of ease and tranquility. And, and the, the, the learned uh, Ibn Ajiba compares that to the fire of Nimrod that Ibrahim was cast in. That when you surrender, you'll find tranquility even in that fire and it become, will become peace for you. So we had an incredibly peaceful Ramadan. I just saw a, a very special auntie, one of the elders of Detroit, uh, yesterday, yesterday I saw her and she said, um, she said, or actually the day before, the day before yesterday, she said that she doesn't want to go back to normal, you know, that she had benefited so much in this Ramadan and the shelter in place. And um, so we were in that tranquility and amazing cooperation among the believers. And we come out of that into this, this uh, you know, just murder and mayhem and tyranny and you know some amount of infighting and argumentation among the believers in response to that and who wants to see the believers removed from the state of tranquility and harmony the iblis wants to the the devil he's the one who wants that the devil is the one who 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 wants to encourage one man to see himself as superior to another man you know so any racist any white supremacist he has a demonic methodology he's on. And um, we should be very vigilant and with vikr and observation of Allah's limits and trying to follow the good character of Prophet Muhammad, uh, the believers should resist uh, these demonic influences and try to spread tranquility and maintain the tranquility um, that Allah has given us and show leadership to other faith communities. And again, none of that uh, precludes or is to the exclusion of establishing justice to the degree possible within the confines of our laws and also the, um, the, the legal system that we, we reside under here in the United States. But um, inwardly, you know, 
our hearts should be guarded and fortified by vicar and, and certitude. And um, our limbs should be governed by the laws of Prophet Muhammad's sunnah. And um, we should endeavor to aspire for our hearts uh, to be guided and, um, and, um, and uh, adorned with the character of Prophet Muhammad. And we should take, come out of Ramadan with that. And, and charged out, uh, or, 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 you know, with fortitude and perseverance, though in measured steps, march forth uh, from that Ramadan, from our caves in Ramadan and our seclusion in Ramadan, to come out and serve. And, um, and, and may Allah grant us to do that in Lutaf and Afia. Uh, and thus, uh, may Allah give us protection, and Allah give us hope, and Allah give us faith, and Allah give us to benefit His creation. And invite to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and khairun mutfanafiyah. Thank you very much for hosting. And inshallah, um, if there are any other questions, I could take them. Otherwise, I actually have to call uh, a close friend, inshallah. To call Sheikh Ibrahim Osiyafa, actually. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you so much for your time and, and your wisdom and your words of hope. Um, I really enjoy talking to you. Alhamdulillah, inshallah, we can meet in person. Allah bless you. Allah preserve you. Inshallah ta'ala. And um, please feel free to stay in touch. And um, you have, uh, especially my, my wife, Mahassan's contacts. Stay in touch. And if you come out to Farmington, make sure to reach out to her and you can visit. Inshallah ta'ala. Barakallah fikum. Place you in Allah's care. Wassalamu alaikum wa Allah Some